93 by Victor Hugo Part 3, Book 5 When Michelle Flechard had caught sight of the tower reddened by the setting sun, she was more than a league away from it. Although she could scarcely take a step, she did not hesitate to begin walking that league. Women are weak, but mothers are strong. She continued to walk. The sun set, twilight came, then deep darkness. Still walking, she heard a distant and invisible bell strike eight o'clock, then nine. The bell was probably in the steeple of Parigny. From time to time, she stopped to listen to dull, muffled sounds, which were perhaps only part of the vague noises of the night. She walked straight ahead, breaking furs and sharp heather beneath her bleeding feet. She was guided by a dim light which came from the distant tower, making it stand out and giving it a mysterious radiance in the darkness. This light became brighter when the muffled sounds became more distinct. Then it faded. The vast plateau across which Michel Flachard was moving was covered only with grass and heather, without a single house or tree. It rose gradually, and, as far as the eye could see, its long, hard, straight line stretched out to the starry horizon. She always had the tower before her eyes, and this sustained her during her ascent. She saw it slowly growing larger. The muffled detonations and the pale glows which came from the tower were intermittent, as we have already said. They would stop, then begin again, posing a poignant enigma to the wretched mother in distress. Suddenly they stopped altogether. The light and the sounds died away. There was a moment of full silence, a kind of sinister peace. It was at that moment that Michel Flechard reached the edge of the plateau. At her feet she saw a ravine whose bottom was lost in the wan density of the night. Some distance away, on a higher part of the plateau, was a tangle of wheels, slopes, and embrasures, which was a battery of cannons. And before her, confusedly illuminated by the lighted matches of the battery, was an enormous edifice, which seemed to have been built with shadows darker than all the other shadows that surrounded it. This edifice was composed of a bridge whose arches plunged down into the ravine, and of a kind of castle which rose from the bridge, and the castle and the bridge were a short distance from a high, dark, round mass which was the tower toward which the mother had begun walking from so far away. She could see lights moving back and forth across the windows of the tower, and from the noise that came from it she judged it to be full of men, some of whom overflowed onto the platform at the top, casting their silhouettes against the sky. Near the battery there was an encampment, whose sentries she could see, but in the darkness and the underbrush they had not seen her. She had reached the edge of the plateau, so near the bridge that it seemed to her that she could almost touch it with her hand. She was separated from it by the depths of the ravine. She could distinguish the three stories of the building on the bridge. She remained there she knew not how long, for the measurement of time had faded from her mind. 
she stood engrossed and silent before that gaping ravine and that shadowy building. What was it? What was happening there? Was this the Torg? She felt numbed, as though she had been waiting for a long time, for either an arrival or a departure, she did not know which. She wondered why she was there. She looked, she listened. Suddenly she could no longer see anything. A veil of smoke had just risen between her and what she was looking at. A sharp burning sensation made her close her eyes. As soon as she lowered her eyelids, a bright reddish light shone through them. She opened her eyes again. It was no longer night that was before her. It was daylight, but a baleful kind of daylight, the kind that comes from a fire. Before her was the beginning of a conflagration. From black, the smoke had become scarlet, and there was a great flame inside it. This flame appeared and disappeared with the fierce twisting of lightning or a snake. The flame was coming out like a tongue from something which resembled a mouth, and which was a window full of fire. This window, protected by iron bars that had already turned red, was one of the windows of the bottom floor of the building on the bridge. It was all that could be seen of the whole building. The smoke covered everything, even the plateau, and nothing could be seen except the edge of the ravine, black against the red flames. Michel Flechard stared in amazement. Smoke is a cloud. Clouds are dreams. She no longer knew what she was seeing. Should she run away? Should she stay? She felt almost outside of reality. A breath of wind passed by and split the curtain of smoke, and through this opening the tragic fortress, suddenly unmasked, was entirely visible, with its stronghold, its bridge, and its little castle on the bridge. It was dazzling and horrible, with the magnificent gilding of the fire reflected on it from top to bottom. Michel Flechard was able to see everything by the sinister light of the fire. The bottom floor of the house on the bridge was burning. Above it she could see the two other floors. They were still intact, but they looked as though they were being carried in a basket of flames. From the edge of the plateau where she was standing she could vaguely see the inside of the rooms through the smoke and flame between them and her. All the windows were open through the windows of the second story, which were very big. She could see cabinets along the walls which seemed to be full of books, and on the floor, in the semi-darkness in front of one of the windows, she saw a jumbled little heap, something which had the confused, indistinct appearance of a nest or a brood. It seemed to her that she occasionally saw it move. She looked at it. What was that little group of shadows? At times it occurred to her that it looked like a group of living forms. She had a fever. She had not eaten since morning. She had walked without stopping. She was exhausted. She felt herself in a kind of hallucination, which she instinctively mistrusted. 
and yet her eyes stared more and more fixedly at that dark heap of objects, apparently inert and probably inanimate, which was lying there on the floor of that room above the fire. Suddenly, as though it had a will of its own, the fire reached up toward the big dead ivy that covered the facade at which Michel Flechard was looking. It was as though the fire had just discovered the network of dried branches. A spark greedily seized upon it, and a flame began climbing up it with the terrible agility of fire traveling along a lighted fuse. In the twinkling of an eye, the flames reached the third floor. They then illuminated the inside of the room on the second floor. A bright glow abruptly made the three sleeping children clearly visible. They formed a charming little group, with arms and legs intertwined, eyes closed, fair hair, and smiling faces. The mother recognized her children. She uttered a frightful cry. This cry of inexpressible anguish is given only to mothers. Nothing is fiercer, and nothing is more touching. When a woman utters it, one thinks it has come from a she-wolf. When a she-wolf utters it, one thinks it has come from a woman. Michelle Flechard's cry was a howl. Hecuba barked, says Homer. It was this cry that the Marquis de Lantanac had just heard. As we have seen, he stopped. He was between the ravine and the end of the passage through which Halmelo had guided him. Through the tangled underbrush above him he saw the burning bridge and the torg, red from the reflection of the flames and through an opening between the two branches over his head, he saw on the other side of the ravine, on the edge of the plateau opposite the burning building, in the full light of the fire, a wild, pitiful figure, a woman leaning over the ravine. It was from this woman that the cry had come. That figure was no longer Michel Flechard. It was Medusa. The wretched are formidable. The peasant woman had been transformed into one of the humanities. That ordinary villager, vulgar, ignorant, and unthinking, had suddenly taken on the epic proportions of despair. Great sorrow is a gigantic expansion of the soul. That mother was motherhood. Everything which epitomizes humanity is superhuman. Her cry was that of a beast, but her gestures were those of a goddess. Curses fell from her lips, and her face was like a mask of flame. Nothing could have been more sovereign than the flash of her tear-filled eyes. Her gaze hurled lightning at the fire. The Marquis listened to the sounds that came from above him. He heard something inarticulate and heart-rending, sobs rather than words. Oh, dear God, my children! Those are my children! Help! Fire! 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 Are you bandits? Isn't there anyone here? My children are going to be burned! Oh, no! Georgette! My children! 
grow a land, Rene Jean, how can it be? Who put my children there? They're asleep. I must be mad. This is impossible. Help! Meanwhile, there was a great movement in the Torg and on the plateau. The whole camp was hurrying up to the fire that had just broken out. Having faced bullets, the besiegers now had to deal with fire. Gauvin, Simordan, and Gaychamp were giving orders. What was to be done? Only a few buckets of water could be raised from the meager stream at the bottom of the ravine. Their consternation increased. The whole edge of the plateau was covered with anxious, staring faces. What they saw was frightful. They looked and could do nothing. Climbing up the ivy, the fire had reached the top floor. There it had found the loft full of straw and had leapt upon it. The whole loft was now burning. The flames were dancing. The joy of flames is a sinister thing. It seemed that a malicious breath was blowing on the fire. It was as though the horrible Imanus were there, transformed into a whirlwind of sparks, alive with the murderous life of the fire, and that his monstrous soul had made itself into a conflagration. The library was not yet burning. The height of its ceiling and the thickness of its walls were delaying the moment when it would catch fire but that fatal moment was approaching. The room was licked by the fire on the first floor and caressed by the fire on the third floor. It was grazed by the terrible kiss of death. Below, a vault of lava. Above, a roof of embers. If the floor collapsed, the children would fall into the flames below. If the ceiling collapsed, they would be buried under burning coals. They had not yet awakened. They were sleeping the deep and simple sleep of childhood. And through the smoke and flame which alternatively hid and revealed the windows, they could be seen in that cave of fire, in a meteoric glare, peaceful, winsome, and motionless, like three trusting baby Christs sleeping in an inferno and a tiger would have wept to see those roses in that furnace and those cradles in that tomb. Meanwhile, the mother was wringing her hands. Fire! Fire! Why doesn't someone come? Is everyone deaf? They're burning my children! Come, you men over there! I've been walking for days and days, and this is how I find them? Fire! Help! They're angels, little angels. What have those innocent babies done? First I'm shot, and now they're being burned? Who is it that's doing those things? Help! Save my children! Don't you hear me? You'd take pity on a dog. My children, my children. They're asleep. Ah, Georgette, I see her little belly, the darling. Rene Jean, Groelaine, those are their names. You can see I'm their mother. What's happening these days is terrible. I walked for days and nights. This morning I talked to a woman. Help! Help! Fire! Are you monsters? This is horrible. The oldest is only four. 
The youngest isn't two yet. I can see their little bare legs. They're asleep, holy virgin. The hand of heaven has given them back to me, and the hand of hell is taking them away from me. I've walked so much. My children, I fed them with my own milk, and I thought I was unlucky because I couldn't find them. Take pity on me. I want my children. I must have my children. They're in the fire. Look at my poor feet. See how they're bleeding. There can't be men on earth who'll let those poor little children die like that. Help! Murder! Oh, the bandits! What is that terrible house? They stole my children to kill them? Dear Jesus, I want my children. Oh, I don't know what I'll do. They can't die. I won't have it. Help! 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 Oh, if they die like that, I'll kill God. During the mother's terrible supplications, other voices arose on the plateau and in the ravine. A ladder. We have no ladder. Water. We have no water. Up there in the tower, on the third floor, there's a door. It's made of iron. Break it open. That's impossible. And the mother redoubled her desperate appeals. Fire! Help! Hurry! My children! If you won't save them, kill me! The horrible fire! Take them out of it, or throw me into it! In the intervals between these clamors, the calm crackling of the flames could be heard. The Marquis put his hand in his pocket and touched the key to the iron door. Then, stooping under the vault through which he had escaped, he went back into the passage from which he had just emerged. A whole army thrown into a frenzy by an impossible rescue. Four thousand men unable to save three children. Such was the situation. There was no ladder. The one sent from Javanet had not arrived. The conflagration was widening like an opening crater. It would have been ridiculous to try to extinguish it with the little trickle of water at the bottom of the ravine. One might as well have thrown a glass of water into a volcano. Simordan, Gaechamp, and Radoub had gone down into the ravine. Gauvin had gone up to the room on the third floor of the Torg, the one containing the turning stone, the secret exit, and the iron door leading into the library. It was there that Imanus had lighted the fuse. It was there that the fire had begun. Gauvin took twenty sappers with him. There was no other resource than to break open the iron door. It was discouragingly well secured. They began by striking it with axes. The axes broke. Steel is like glass against that iron, said a sapper. The door was made of two three-inch thicknesses of wrought iron bolted together. The men took iron bars and tried to pry the door loose. The bars broke. They snap like matches, said the sapper. Only a cannonball could break open that door, Gauvin murmured gloomily. We'd have to be able to get a cannon up here. 
and even then it might not work, said the sapper. There was a moment of dejection. All those powerless arms stopped. Silent, defeated, and dismayed, the men looked at the terrible, unshakable door. A red reflection could be seen beneath it. Behind it, the conflagration was growing. Imanus's hideous corpse was there, a sinister victor. Only a few more minutes, and the whole building might collapse. What was to be done? There was no more hope. Looking at the turning stone and the open passage, Govan cried out angrily, It was through there that the Marquis de Lantanac escaped. And returned, said a voice. And a white-haired man appeared in the stone frame of the secret passage. It was the Marquis. It had been many years since Govan had seen him from so near. He stepped back. All the other men stood still, petrified. The Marquis had a big key in his hand. His haughty gaze drove back the sappers who were in front of him. He walked straight to the iron door, bent down beneath the arch, and put the key into the lock. The lock creaked, and the door opened. An abyss of flame appeared. The Marquis went into it. He walked into it with firm steps, holding his head high. The men all watched him, shuddering. As soon as he had gone a few paces into the burning room, the floor, undermined by the fire and shaken by his feet, collapsed behind him, making a precipice between him and the door. He continued walking, without looking back. He disappeared into the smoke. Nothing more could be seen. Had he been able to go farther? Had a new morass of fire opened beneath him? Had he succeeded only in killing himself? No one could say. There was nothing to be seen except a wall of smoke and flame. The Marquis was beyond it, dead or alive. Meanwhile, the children had finally opened their eyes. The fire, which had not yet entered the library, cast a pink glow on the ceiling. The children had never seen a dawn like that. They looked at it. Georgette contemplated it. The conflagration displayed all its splendors. Black hydras and scarlet dragons appeared in the shapeless, superbly dark and red smoke. Long streaks of flame shot through the darkness like fighting comets pursuing one another. Fire is lavish. It is full of jewels which it scatters in the wind. It is not for nothing that a lump of coal is identical with a diamond. Cracks had opened in the wall of the third story, through which the fire was pouring cascades of gems into the ravine. The pile of straw and oats that was burning in the loft was beginning to stream through the windows in avalanches of golden dust. The oats turned into amethysts, the straw into garnets. Pretty, said Georgette. All three of them had sat up. Ah, they're waking up, 
cried their mother. Rene Jean got up, then Groalan, then Georgette. Rene Jean stretched his arms, went over to the window, and said, I'm hot. I'm hot, said Georgette. Their mother called them. Children, Rene, Alain, Georgette. The children looked around them. They tried to understand. Where men are terrified, children are curious. Those who are easy to astonish are difficult to frighten. There is intrepidity in ignorance. Children have so little right to hell that if they saw it, they would look at it in wonder. The mother repeated, Rene, Alain, Georgette. Rene Jean turned his head. That voice had roused him from his reverie. Children's memories are short but quick. For them, the whole past is yesterday. Rene Jean saw his mother and considered it perfectly natural. Surrounded by strange things and feeling a vague need for support, he cried out, Mama! Mama! said Groalan. Mama! said Georgette, holding out her little arms. And the mother shrieked, My children! All three of them went to the window. Fortunately, the fire was not on that side. I'm too hot, said Rene Jean. Something's burning. He looked down at his mother. Come here, Mama. Here, Mama, repeated Georgette. The mother, disheveled, torn, and bleeding, let herself roll down the ravine from bush to bush. Simordan and Gaishamp were there, as powerless as Govan was in the tower. The soldiers, in despair at being useless, swarmed around them. The heat was unbearable, yet no one felt it. They were all considering the steepness of the bridge, the elevation of the arches, the height of the stories, the inaccessibility of the windows, and the necessity of acting quickly. Three floors to climb, but no way of doing it. Radub, wounded, with one ear shot off and a saber cut in the shoulder, rushed forward, dripping sweat and blood. He saw Michel Fléchard. "'But you were shot!' he exclaimed. "'Have you come back to life?' "'My children!' said the mother. "'Yes, you're right,' replied Radub. "'We don't have time to bother with ghosts.' And he began trying to climb up the bridge. It was a futile attempt. He dug his fingernails between the stones and hoisted himself for a few minutes, but the stones were smooth, without any breaks or bulges, and were as tightly joined as they had been when the bridge was new. Radub fell back. The appalling conflagration continued. The three blonde heads of the children could be seen in the reddened window. Radub shook his fist at the sky, as though he were looking for someone, and said, "'Good God, what a thing to do!' The mother, on her knees, clung to one of the piers on the bridge, and cried out, "'Mercy!' Dull rumbles were mingled with the crackling of the flames. The glass in the bookcases of the library was breaking, and loudly crashing to the floor. It was obvious that the timbers were giving way. 
the whole building was about to collapse, and no human strength could prevent it. The men could do nothing but wait for the catastrophe. They could hear the little voices repeating, Mama, Mama, Mama! They were at the peak of consternation. Suddenly, in the window next to the one in which the children could be seen against a background of red flames, a tall figure appeared. All heads were raised, all eyes stared fixedly. A man was up there in the library, in that fire. His figure stood out dark against the flames, but it could be seen that he had white hair. The onlookers recognized the Marquis de Lantanac. He vanished, then reappeared. The stern old man stood before the window, holding an enormous ladder. It was the ladder that had been placed inside the library. He had gone over to where it was lying against the wall and dragged it to the window. He seized it by one end and, with the majestic agility of an athlete, pushed it out the window, sliding it on the sill until it touched the bottom of the ravine. Radub, below, frantically held up his hands, clutched the ladder, threw his arms around it, and cried, Long live the Republic! The Marquis replied, Long live the King! And Radub muttered, You can yell anything you want and talk nonsense if you feel like it, but you're still an angel as far as I'm concerned. The ladder was firmly set down, and communication was established between the burning room and the ground. A score of men climbed up, led by Radub, and in the twinkling of an eye they were all lined up along the ladder from top to bottom, with their back to the rungs, like masons lifting or loosening stones. They thus formed a human ladder on the wooden ladder. Radub, at the top, could touch the window. He was facing the fire. The little army, scattered in the heather and on the slopes, pressed forward, overwhelmed by all sorts of emotions at once, and swarmed over the plateau, down into the ravine, and up onto the platform of the tower. The Marquis vanished, then reappeared, bringing a child. There was an immense clapping of hands. It was the first child he had happened to pick up. It was Groalan. Groalan cried out, I'm afraid. The Marquis gave him to Radub, who handed him down to a soldier, who handed him to another, and while Groalan, frightened and screaming, was thus being passed down the ladder, the Marquis went away for a moment, came back to the window with René Jean, who struggled and wept and struck Radub when the Marquis handed him to him. The Marquis went back into the flame-filled room. Georgette had remained alone. He went up to her. She smiled. That man of granite felt his eyes become moist. He asked, What's your name? Georgette, she said. He picked her up in his arms. She continued to smile. When he handed her to Radub, that dark though lofty spirit was dazzled by innocence. The old man gave the child a kiss. It's the little girl, said the soldiers, and Georgette was also passed down the ladder from hand to hand amid cries of adoration. 
The men clapped their hands and stamped their feet. Old grenadiers sobbed, and she smiled at them. Her mother was at the foot of the ladder, panting, feverish, intoxicated by all those unexpected events, having been cast without transition from hell to heaven. She held out her arms, received Groelan first, then René Jean, then Georgette. She covered them with kisses, then burst out laughing and fainted. A great shout arose. They're all saved! all except the old man. But no one was thinking of him, perhaps not even he himself. He calmly remained at the window for a few moments, as though he wanted to give the abyss of flame time to make a decision. Then, without haste, slowly and proudly, he stepped over the window sill, and without turning back, erect, with his back to the rungs and the fire behind him, Facing the void, he began descending the ladder in silence, with the majesty of a phantom. Those who were on the ladder hurried down it. Everyone who saw him shuddered and drew back. Around that man arriving from above, there was an aura of sacred horror as around a vision. He gravely strode into the darkness before him. As they stepped back, he moved toward them. His marble pallor was expressionless. There was no light in his ghostly gaze. With each step that he took toward those men whose frightened eyes stared at him in the shadows, he seemed to grow larger. The ladder shook and creaked beneath his ominous tread, and he looked like the statue of the commander going back into the grave. When the Marquis was at the bottom, when he had reached the last rung of the ladder and put his foot on the ground, a hand came down on his shoulder. He turned around. "'I arrest you,' said Simordan. "'You are right,' said Lantanac.